I think another mistake that is always top of mind, and this is almost stage agnostic, is a lot of the time they'll start to win without knowing why. Hey everyone, and welcome back to SaaS Half Full, the only show serving B2B SaaS marketers. I'm Lindsay Groper, president at Blast Media, And today, as always, I will be both your host and bartender. Today, we are being joined by Elias Rubel, who is currently the CEO of Mattermade. Now, Elias is definitely a B2B SaaS veteran, both as a founder who grew his SaaS companies through to an acquisition, and who then also served as VP marketing for a high-growth SaaS company. And now, he is the CEO of Mattermade, which is a growth marketing agency and almost like a demand gen consultancy and outsourced demand gen team, but serving the B2B SaaS sector. So at Mattermade, they help clients go to market. And we are talking with Elias today about the most common mistakes that you guys make in go to market that hold you back from explosive growth. So if you want to hear where you're screwing up and how you can get better next time around, grab a drink. And saddle up as I speak with Elias Rubel, CEO of Mattermade. Hey, Elias, welcome to SAS Half Full. Thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, absolutely, Lindsay. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Where are you sitting today? I am in a chair, and that chair happens to be in, um, in Denver, Colorado. Lovely. And are you joining me for a drink today? I sure am. I have this... Uh, Serrano Sour that you sent me, and I'm very excited about it. Awesome. I'm so glad. A lot of times I find myself drinking alone on SAS Half Full, and I am not beneath that. I'm happy to do so. I am fairly lame today, and I'm actually laughing. I thought I grabbed a Truly, but it is like a poor man's Truly from somewhere called Vista Bay. Don't know what that is. But right after this, I have a new hire onboarding with three of our new team members. So I figured I shouldn't go to the Tito's. I'll do something a little <laughs> little more manageable. We are going to be talking about common mistakes that SaaS companies make in go-to-market, which I think will be a really interesting topic for us and certainly based on our audience. But before we dive into that, I do want to give our listeners a bit more insight into you and who you are. So if you could give us a little background, Elias, into how you got into B2B SaaS. You have been in this industry in in various capacities for quite some time, but wanted to get that quick history on how you got into B2B SaaS and then ultimately how you landed in the marketing discipline. I tell varying degrees of of truthful stories. <laughs> and and at this point now, I tell the full degree of truthful story, which, which is I was waiting tables in Los Angeles at the start of my career, wanted to be an artist, thought I was going to be a photographer, went to art school, dropped out of art school. And uh, I had what I call my, my quarter life crisis, where I was having a ton of fun living in LA. I actually lived in Santa Monica. It was a good life, but I realized that I would be staring down 50 as a waiter and I wasn't comfortable with that lifestyle. Long story short, I was fortunate enough to have a mom that was willing to let me move into our basement in Portland. And I pulled the ripcord and set this challenge for myself where I wasn't allowed to leave the basement until I'd started a company. No background in business, no, no sense for what that actually meant, but I just was committed to the idea of it. And so fast forward a number of years, started a company, raised VC, business was acquired in 2014. Along the path, our our VCs in that first business 
came to me and asked if I could help some portfolio companies with growth early stage. And what I found was I really enjoyed that work. I really enjoyed going in at you know seed series A and helping companies avoid common pitfalls and helping them accelerate outcomes. But what I found was that I was not able to be as effective without having a team to back me because a lot of the times these companies had to choose between make a really expensive senior hire, the person who knows what pitfalls to avoid and how to accelerate things, or hire a couple junior folks and hope that they can sprint on the right stuff. And so I had this thesis because I missed having my own team. The theory was that if I hired my own team, my own B2B marketing org and roamed around the valley, both with the senior level leadership, as well as the arms and legs at a more junior level to execute, that I could be highly effective, that we as a group could be highly effective in driving growth for SaaS businesses. And so that's that's actually the the founding story of Mattermade and, and how we got to where we are today. So now running day-to-day CEO of Mattermade, give us the the quick speed dating version of what your agency does and who your clients are. <laughs> so we are B2B marketers. We're a B2B marketing org of about 15 people. And we help companies typically series A through series C accelerate growth outcomes. That basically means anything under the sun of B2B marketing, whether it's account-based marketing, driving campaigns, helping with content strategy, helping with product-led growth initiatives, anything that would fall under B2B marketing, we are experts in. You are a listener of the show. Your team actually reached out to me and said, we think Elias would be a great guest. What interested you in the first place? Why did you want to come on here? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I think that, um, well, first off, you run a great show, but specifically, I, I feel as though most podcasts focus on things that worked. They focus on a company's success with a specific tactic or strategy. But my personal opinion is that strategies and tactics that work or worked tend to be very specific to a, a time and place, an industry. Uh, market conditions in general, a product, right? There, there are a number of things that rely on all of those other variables in order for those strategies and tactics to work. It's highly contextual. And so I think more folks need to be out there talking about the things that don't work and the things to avoid, because we find that those are much more universal than the things that do work. So, you know, I, I, I will talk about things that work, but generally I like to focus more on like, hey, here are the giant pitfalls that we see time and time again, whether it's series A, series B, series C, and of course, growth stage has their own unique problem set. But but generally in that A through C, we just keep seeing companies making the same mistakes. And it's great because it means there's opportunity and there's room to grow and improve. But I just think it's important to, to share those. I completely am picking up what you're throwing down because we do only PR for B2B SaaS. And I would echo that same sentiment in that we're driven by the news, which is constantly changing and also unpredictable. And so when we have clients ask for a recommendation to say, well, what worked in the past? What worked for this company? To your point, completely contextual based on truly what was happening in the world, uh, what's happening in their space and their industry. So I feel you on that. We are going to talk about some of those common mistakes uh, that companies make Before we get into the meat of that, though, I did a quick Google search on the definition of go-to-market, and there are some similarities but also differences depending on the source and the industry. So I wanted to start with a base layer with you is how you define go-to-market. It's funny 
how many of these acronyms or just industry lingo, how many of these terms have different meanings to different people. To me, go-to-market means, at least the way that we think of go-to-market, it is the, the strategy, systems, process, tactics that you put into play once you've reached product market fit. And I, I get that some people say you can absolutely have a go-to-market for a seed stage company that's still finding product market fit or refining product market fit. But in, in our case, and when I'm speaking to some of these pitfalls to avoid, I, I'm speaking from the point of you already have product market fit, you have some repeatability, and now we need to go to market and scale that. That would be one. The other is for later stage column, whether they're scale-ups or enterprise, think of the Dropboxes of the world. As far as our clients are concerned, we think of go-to-market as these large companies have initiatives, right? They have new product lines that they're launching, new features. And when done right, each of those is treated as its own go-to-market moment, motion, and you know, eventually it turns into a scaled process. So that's in a nutshell how we think of go-to-market. All right. Well, let's start then. Hit us with the number one biggest fuck-up SaaS companies make when looking at their go-to-market strategy? It's almost hard to put them in, in number one. Absolutely, this is the, the most common one that's made, but certainly the one that's most top of mind for me when I get up on my soapbox and rant for earlier stage, for, for like series A, is thinking that people care about your product. You know, you have, <laughs> and this is the worst to tell founders, right? But, you know, it's, it, you've spent all of this heads down time blood, sweat, and tears, maybe minus the blood, and you're in love with your product and you think it's great. And you have to remember that no one else is outside of your parents, maybe, and your family. And so I think that's just like a sobering gut check sometimes for these founders and early teams to remember when they're thinking about how they want to enter a channel or messaging, even how they're going to talk about the product. This manifests itself in, in a lot of different ways as challenges. An example would be you go to a website and it's just talking about features because they they spend all their time building features, right? Whereas it should be whoever your buyer persona is or buying committee, your goal should be that that person, if she's a VP of marketing or VP of sales, and she wants to be out with her kids at their soccer game present, fully present, you should be aligning yourself with her not needing her notifications to be turned on on the weekend at that game, Right. And so messaging from that place, from almost a selfish place up for your buyer persona and advocating for them and their needs, that's where these early execs and founders should have their headspace in order to see success and not run into this like thinking people care about your product trap. And how do you have that conversation gently? So they say, Elias, here's our site and it's all about the product and all about them and not about their buyer. I used to do it gently and now I don't. I found that ripping the bandaid off all at once was the the most effective and also it just resonated more. And so now I actually have a deck. If it's first-time founders or first-time executives, we'll get this deck out and I'll just say, "Hey, we help around 10 SaaS businesses a year grow. We've seen some shit, and that's why you brought us in, right? You hired us for that expertise and pattern matching." And so I'll walk through just slide by slide, like here are the top 10 mistakes that we see companies that we work with make. And and I'm saying this up front and I'm not you know beating around it because the sooner you grok these things or can self-identify these things, the sooner we can grow. 
When you're helping these Series A to Series C companies, talk to me about their accuracy in defining their target market and their ICP. Because I struggle with this sometimes as well, where it seems that companies are truly believe that they can sell anything to anyone and they don't really have a defined target and or don't feel like they have any competitors, which I'm always like, oh, we got to really take some steps back here. Where are most of your clients in terms of truly understanding their target? You touched on a couple of elements that have their own dedicated slide when I give this talk. So I'm glad you you took the conversation this direction. To answer your question, candidly, this is why we don't work with seed stage anymore is just because there wasn't enough repeatability or understanding there. And we're too expensive to, to hire to help you find product market fit. You know. <laughs> yeah, right. And so uh, it's varying states to answer your, your, your question. I'd say everyone knows, air quotes, people can't see my hands, I'm doing air quotes. Everyone knows what their ICP is. And most people have a sense for who their primary buyer persona is. I'd say it's the nuance in there. Like a lot of Teams haven't yet institutionalized who their buying committee is, like who influences the deal, who can kill the deal, these sorts of things, and deeply understanding their aspirations in life, their wants, their needs, what are they driven by politically within that organization. So that is certainly one slide I speak to, which is really understanding the use cases for each of the people on the committee. The other piece to it is I call it the blue sky TAM versus the now TAM right? And this is especially common because founders or CEOs will come hot off the, the, the trail of Sandhill Road. They're marching up and down. They're raising money and they're pitching the big vision, which is great. They have to, right? You've got to get the VCs excited to raise the money, yada, yada, yada. But sometimes there isn't the discipline to remember that, that is, that's the blue sky, you're talking about your IPO numbers, right? Not your, hey, we just raised a monster series B and we need to go boil that very specific ocean, which I call the now TAM. So just this idea of sitting down with your sales leaders, marketing leaders, the leaders within the business and saying, okay, we know that there's going to be a path to get to that blue sky TAM. We're not discounting that. We're just saying, if we need to double this year or triple this year, then let's only look at the total universe necessary to build enough pipeline to triple this year. And that's it. Everything else is effectively dead to us because then it's this amazing act of focus and being really efficient with our time internally, with our budgets externally. So we hammered one mistake, which is known as in love with your product, making sure that you're focusing on the why and not the what. Share in that philosophy as well here. What is another mistake? Yeah. So we talked about the now TAM versus the blue sky TAM. We talked about getting specific. So actually this I can elaborate on. When it comes to the buying committee, you see this in more mature organizations will have use cases by persona on their site. And I think that that's a really subtle sign to the, to the world that they are mature enough in their own understanding of their prospects to be able to, to speak to those use cases and to speak to those use cases in the language that they're customers actually use. And so the earlier a company can push for that, the better. You want to get people off your generic site and onto a page that speaks to them very specifically as quickly as possible. I think another mistake that is 
always top of mind, and this is almost stage agnostic, is a lot of the time they'll start to win without knowing why. And so this is like, I'm putting on my kind of nagging hat a little bit, but just a reminder, but to have the discipline to take the extra two weeks or however long it's going to take to set up that foundation first so that you can track and understand what did go well when you start to win. It's, it's really subtle, but it makes all the difference. However long it took to set up that MarTech, it's going to pay for itself a gajillion fold down the road because then you don't have to slow down. What would you suggest are a couple of must-have tools in the MarTech stack to build that foundation? I'd say for the companies listening who are on the earlier side of things, don't try to get cute with new tools for your core MarTech pillars. Use Salesforce or HubSpot for your CRM and for your marketing automation. Don't think that you can make a newer kind of cool, better UI tool. Huge mistake. Eventually you're going to hire, if you haven't already, a senior VP of sales or VP of marketing. And those two folks are going to have extremely strong opinions about using something that they've scaled with before. And they're going to want to hire reps who are experienced using tools. You don't want to reinvent the wheel. And as we see a lot of companies reinventing the wheel there. So I'd say that's kind of just generic baseline. There are some really cool platforms out there that we're starting to push more and more. An example would be metadata.io, for example is a really fantastic tool if you want to begin to scale your demand gen campaigns in a way that would require a ton of just human time and wouldn't be feasible or realistic if you were just having folks do it on a one-to-one basis. And so it's not pure play automation, but it is really damn good at enabling the resources that you do have to scale your demand gen efforts. Okay. So we have, no one is is in love with your product. Understand that. You're now TAM versus Blue Sky TAM. And I have some follow-up questions on that. And then if you do start to win, understand why. And I put in a little star here. Don't get cute with your foundational (laughs) MarTech pillars. I like that. (laughs) Are there other common mistakes that you see before I dive into some more questions on the, the now TAM? There are a couple that are like soft skills that they may be some of the things that take the most time to coach and ultimately can be some of the things that slow organizations down the most. So this one, if I've had three or four beers and I'm chatting industry with someone, this is almost always the one I go to first, which is putting opinions over testing, putting executive or founder opinions over testing. And it's not because my feelings are hurt or something that my idea, it's actually, that is the problem is that you get these folks who have amazing backgrounds. Maybe they're, they have amazing, they have big titles in the organization, or maybe they're the founder themselves of the organization. And they begin to believe that for those reasons, their ideas are right (laughs) and they might be right, but the healthy thing to do and the thing to institutionalize within your company is to create a culture of testing, rapid testings, and to put this culture of testing over a culture of opinions. And it doesn't mean I'm not advocating for 
dragging out decision-making. Like I'm all about quick decisions, but you can still make quick decisions and bake in enough time to get some form of signal from the market about what the right decision is. I mean, we spend time sometimes counseling is the nicest word to use, really senior groups of people on why we shouldn't just run with one line of copy for an ad that they feel passionately about. It's like, let's just test as a team, our favorite five that we, you know, our best guess, these five, cool, let's go. And in a week's time, we'll have enough signal to know which ones are, are performant and which ones aren't. And a lot of the time that isn't, it's not stat sig, it's not mathematically perfect, but it's, we're running a startup here. We're not trying to, to reach statistical perfection each time. We just need a little bit of signal to find around our way in the dark to the next big milestone. Are you finding that these opinions bleed into trying to define how you should reach the goals that they've outlined? Where they've said, here are my goals. And you say, great, here's how we're going to get there. And those opinions start to be like, well, I think we should do it this way. Do you get situations where they define the goal and then they're trying to define how you get there as well? No, I mean, thankfully, I think what's unique about us specifically at Mattermade is that, so a lot of the time people think of us as they come to us with this idea of paid media agencies, because that's what they're used to working with. And we're not normal, right? I have to remind them before we even sign a contract that like, hey, we're much more like management consulting that specializes in B2B marketing, SaaS marketing, but we go hands on keyboards, right? And so because 100% of our business comes to us through referrals from VCs, folks who have worked with us before in the past, there's this interesting power dynamic that I think they're not used to, but that really plays to everyone's benefit because they come to us knowing, hey, we have these really audacious goals. We know we don't know how to get there or we can't get there as quickly as we'd like to. And we know based on the, the strength of the referral and your reputation out there that you, that you do know how to get us there. You can get us there. And so thankfully that has, has teed us up to not have teams second guessing the strategy you know, I'm not saying we don't have lively debates and, and help get people through it, but there are very few instances where someone just flat out says like, here's my opinion and you're going to do it simply because that's not how we work. And we've exited relationships in the past, not, not more than once or twice, but I think it's healthy for a team to be able to quit a client if you know that you're not doing your best work or not able to do your best work. And we're thankfully in a place where you know, we have a wait list for people to work with us. And so we, we can, we are comfortable turning down revenue and walking away from a relationship if it's not in a place where we know we're doing our best work for them and they're enthusiastic about the partnership. Now, we completely share in that philosophy. There's a difference between a, a, a challenging client relationship and a bad one. And you mentioned a couple soft skills. And you talked about creating culture of testing over opinions. Was there another soft skill that you wanted to dive into as well? You said it's after a few drinks. So I realize I'm probing into maybe buzzed territory where normally you hold back, but I'm, I'm asking. So you said these are soft skills. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that the opinions over testing is, is one of them. It's just a mindset soft skill, if you will. I think that parlays into 
you know, death by politics when people start to take things personally, and it, this is directly related to opinions, then politics can take over and people start looking out for their own. I've got my fingers up again, turf in, in quotes, and that's not you know healthy for any high fast growth org. And I, I know that a lot of early stage companies won't self-identify as having that, but I think it is healthy for the leadership team to self-assess and to look at their groups and and just try to identify if any of that is brewing. I'd say those are the two big soft skills. Maybe the the last one that is perhaps a soft skill, you have to be really comfortable to do this, is there's this acceptance of status quo when it comes to campaigns. I mean, design, copy, creativity in general, for most people, B2B, just you assume like, oh, we just you need to cover, we need an asset for this white paper, or for this ebook, and then they're, you know, they're going to put that on LinkedIn. And it just feels so boring and bland and monotonous. And the biggest, I think one of the biggest opportunities right now in B2B is that it is boring and that there is this sense of status quo. And we don't have to look very hard to see examples of teams and companies who have started to take risks and step outside of that status quo as winning because of it. For all the marketers out there and, and probably a lot of sales folks, they know who Dave Gerhardt is. And no disrespect to Dave, he is tremendously exceptional. He's, he's done a phenomenal job of building a personal brand, but also a great job at building the Drift brand. And he did that by just taking some very lightweight design, copy, et cetera, risks. And, and they weren't even that risky in the scheme of things. He just said, like, I'm not willing to be as boring as everyone else. Here you go. And then backed it up with his own brand and bam. Another example right now of a company I think that's doing great with this is ServiceNow. Uh, if you look at any of their recent campaigns, their video collateral, they are marketing as though they are Nike or Pepsi, right? They're, they're treating their brand presence as though they're a B2C company and they're taking creative seriously. And I say this, we're not a creative agency in the sense of like a traditional creative agency. I don't make money selling people prettier things or more creative things, right? We do well when our clients hit their revenue numbers. So this isn't out of self-interest. This is just when you can stand out. And if there are easy levers to pull to stand out, everyone should be leaning on them and they're not. So huge low-hanging fruit opportunity. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of talk about the consumerization in the formal term, consumerization of B2B marketing. And it's interesting because we market to people, not businesses, no matter what end you're on. I did an interview with Tim Gloam from Cheetah Digital, and Tim Gloam was a very atypical B2B marketing hire. He was a producer for MTV's Jackass, worked with Mark Cuban. And he takes this approach to B2B marketing and Cheetah Digital was realizing that they were getting lost in the shuffle. But for their last user conference, they hired Tommy Lee and his wife to essentially MC their conference. You have Tommy Lee talking about uh, marketing automation and magic quadrants, but it made people stop, right? The promo videos on LinkedIn, you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you're like, Tommy Lee and Brittany Furlong for B2B marketing, but that is where we need to go, especially now, my God, when we're all online and there's all we have are Zoom conferences and 
digital conferences, it's like you have to stand out somehow. I'm also too, from your standpoint, I know you have many, many client stories, but do you have a particular favorite client story that stands out to you in terms of one where they came in with one idea and you asked them to trust you and the outcome and output was just something that really stands out to you? I'd say, so the Calm team is phenomenal. It's just the most talented, one of the most talented teams we've worked with and fun, which is great. Uh, makes our job that much more enjoyable. And they are full of creative ideas. I think because they hire primarily as a B2C org traditionally. And so they attract that type of creative talent. And so the work that we have done with them in taking that B2C persona, brand promise, identity, and corralling it into tremendous opportunity on the B2B side of things has led to some really fun, standout results and campaigns that to your average B2B organization would be just less commonplace. Elias, this has been awesome. Is there anything else that we didn't talk about that you want to tackle today? No, this was this was really fun. I, I had a blast and really appreciate you having me on the show. Absolutely. Well, as we end every episode, do you have a favorite toast to send us out? Like the kind that you put in the toaster? The co- <laughs> no. I'm going to lead with that. I'm going to I'm oh going to tell you my gosh, favorite kind of toast. Sourdough. <laughs> my no. All right, it's it's a toss up between like a toasted walnut cranberry bread from your favorite local baker with the crispy crust, like that was just dark toasted with butter and some avocado and and oil drizzled on top, or it's hard to go wrong with a really good bagel, cream cheese with uh, raspberry jam on top of it. Um, I love both of those, but in a world and in a show where we're drinking- Oh, that kind of toast. Yeah. Cheers. There we go. Perfect. Well, I will certainly drink to that. Elias, thank you so much. This was really informative. I definitely know that there are marketers listening to this that had a couple of oh shit moments where they, I'm sure, realize that they're doing a couple things potentially not the correct way and could be doing them better. So really appreciate the time. Thanks again to Elias for joining us on SAS Full. He was enjoying a cocktail kit that we sent his way. And if you'd like your own cocktail kit, you can get one. We will have it shipped to your door and you can visit cocktailcourier.com and enter code SHF5 at checkout, which will get you five bucks off your cocktail kit. As always, thanks for listening, guys. Appreciate it. And until next time, bottoms up.